Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Anthony, and this is Bottom Bracket Biking Podcast. A couple's guide to biking. Hey y'all, welcome to episode 31. We have a really cool interview for you today, but first, let's look at what events we have coming up. So the first one is the Albia Rock Road. This is a gravel ride, and this is part of the Iowa Gravel Series. It is going to be in Albia, specifically St. Mary's Catholic Church is the starting location on Saturday, July 17th. All right, and then we have Ragbri starting up July 24th is the first day. Mm -hmm. But uh, everybody knows about that. What you might not know about is this interesting title. The is that Lytton? Lytton, I think. L Y T T O N. Either way, Monday of Ragbri, July twenty sixth, they are going to have the Ragbri Goat Yoga Class World Record attempt. Uh, their hope is to have eight hundred cyclists and hundred and sixty goats. A hundred and sixty goats. A hundred and sixty goats to have a world record goat yoga attempt. I, I mean, it's Ragbri, guys. What did you expect? I was going to say, that sounds like <laughs> perfect for Ragbri. Uh, yeah. So, you know, Monday, if you're on Ragbri, show up at Lytton, Lytton. It is on Main Street of Lytton. Just go ahead and look at it at Bike Iowa. That is hilarious, and I hope that it works the way they want it to. And if you go, please send us pictures, because we won't be there that day, but that sounds amazing. All right. Uh, that's all the events we really wanted to talk about, kind of light this week. Mm-hmm. But let's go on to the interview, which we might have had the writer-exclusive interview. Well, at this point, it won't stay that way, but... Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe we can say writer-exclusive at this moment. So, it is with Heather Poskovich, who did the Ride Across the West. Yep, just got done with that. Started on June 15th, and, well, we'll let her talk about that. Yeah, we'll let her talk about it. Uh, enjoy the interview. Here we go. Welcome to the interview portion of the podcast. We have Heather Poskovich here, who just did the Race Across the West, a 930-mile ultra race from Oceanside, California to Durango, Colorado. Say hi, Heather. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so it's been what two weeks now since you just since you got done. Yes. And you did it in what three days or so? Yep, three days, two hours, thirty-one minutes to be exact. Yeah. Wow, that is impressive. I was just looking at it at your results, and that's an average of twelve point four six miles an hour for three days. That is impressive. Thank you. <laughs> Or put in terms of the other ultra event we covered, that is one Iowa wind and rock every day for three days. <laughs> yeah, I've done that too. So, <laughs> so you placed, uh, well, you placed first in the women's category, right? Correct. So you won that and you, what, it was third overall. It right? actually ended up being second. The oh. um, finisher had a penalty. So our final, final verdict was second place. That oh, nice. is incredible. And I was looking and I mean, there was a bunch of DNFs this year. Was that because of the heat that was there? I think it was what, day two where the heat came in? Yeah. Well, yeah. Even starting on day one, once we got into Brigo Springs, it was pretty hot, but yeah, the heat was punishing on the second day and it really, it was definitely there on the third day as well. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of DNFs anyway, kind of like Iowa and Rock, but looking through the results was like, man. Yeah, I think there are more DNFs than finishes, which, you know, you're talking 930 miles through mountains. I, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it was a tough year. So I guess to start with, what prompted you to get into, you know, the ultra distance and then race across the West specifically? Well, I don't know. I kind of dove right into racing. I actually, um, I started cycling years ago, well, 2015 for fitness. I actually was a lot heavier, um, back then. And then I started, you know, riding with you guys around the community and wanted to get a bit faster. And then actually my first race was gravel worlds, uh, (laughs) 2017. And that was, you know, Scott Sumter was there and fuller. And I was like, well, I, I had been training to ride the triple bypass to kind of celebrate my weight loss. And I love climbing in the mountains. And then that got canceled the one and only year because of forest fires. So, oh. well, I'll just carry this fitness into this 150 mile race and see if I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Ended up passing those guys, which was horridly shocking. Something must've been wrong. It was a hot day then too. And I don't know, after that, it just kept escalating. So you said 2017. So it's been, this is the fourth year that you've been doing longer distances like that. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. So to, to do that kind of distance, I mean, I, I follow you on Strava, so I'll see, you know, you go out and do like a 200 mile ride on like a Saturday. Yeah. How long did it take you to build up to that? Or did you just maintain that fitness through winter? Like what, what did your training plan look like? Well, I, um, I mean, I've, I've been training with Greg Grand George now for, uh, three and a half years. So, you know, I usually train with him probably 11 months out of the year, 10 months out of the year, I'll take a month off to kind of detrain. So I took November off after last year's racing cycle to just kind of ride for fun. And then we started back in December. So I don't know, start with some higher intensity work, a little shorter duration. Cause you know how fun Iowa winter is when it comes to <laughs> outdoors. <laughs> um, and then just started building up from there. Yeah. The, the subject of Iowa winters comes up a lot with people because they are, they're just brutal. brutal. So did you do the whole like eight hours on a trainer in the middle of winter? Like some people, I, I did have to do some that, that was kind of, I mean, Greg does a really great job as far as like training and understanding what we deal with here in this climate. So we try and start with some kind of higher intensity to start building some fitness. I probably still had like six hour rides on the trainer, a few of those, which is just, I mean, it's good mental fortitude training, I suppose. <laughs> but you know, that actually makes a lot of sense when you're looking at something like raw of you have to be able to just keep pedaling when you don't want to. Exactly. You also maybe don't want to be pedaling when it's the freaking Arctic tundra. Cause <laughs> I think my all time low was, you know, like I just need to go outside. And so I'd take the fat bike out cause the roads were actually relatively decent this winter. And then I spent a, you know, some seat time playing around big Creek when it was in good condition. But when, <laughs> when you've cracked out all your winter gear in a ski helmet and ski goggles, that's I'm a summer lover. Yeah. <laughs> That's, we that's- had a couple of those uh, drag out the ski gear days as well. I've decided anything under 10 degrees, I just don't care for. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My, My gear doesn't- like 70. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it should be in a different climate. <laughs> 70 is good. So, yeah. like, going into this season, was, was Raw, like, the big goal? When did you sign up for that? So, I actually signed up for that in... 2019. 
Um, and then of course COVID hit. So it uh, was canceled last year, which turned out to be kind of a blessing in disguise. I think things kind of worked out for a reason. And I ended up doing the big sky spectacular instead. And I was really thrilled to get an opportunity to do that race. That's another fantastic event, but you know, it kind of caters to my love, you know, with gravel riding, there was about just a little under 200 miles of gravel riding on that. And then the rest of it was, uh, paved, but that was a 968 mile race unsupported. Um, and that one was a great opportunity just to build some confidence that I could even ride this kind of distance. Um, you know, by the time you get into raw, you're, you're in the thick of it. You're, you know, I had eight crew members, three cars, flights, hotels, food, all the supplies and gear to make this thing happen. Like it's going to be a, a financial investment and failure is not high on my list of things to do if I can avoid it. Are there any, is there a qualifier for raw? I know some of those bigger races there are. You would sure think so. It actually, it isn't, there is no qualifier. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which I do find a bit perplexing, but, um, I don't know. It's their baby race to Ram. So yeah. I mean, it's only 930 miles, right? Right. Kickwalk. Come on. So you mentioned that it's supported, which is something that we actually haven't talked about on the podcast. Normally it's, you know, Iowa wind and rock unsupported type stuff. How do you, how do you pick a crew? What goes into all of that? Um, that's an interesting one. Crew, I would say that finding crew is a challenge. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that they just live off of being crew members for this kind of event and they're kind of scattered throughout the country. And I'm still kind of, you know, meeting them as we go along. Um, you know, I kind of picked off some people from Sarah Cooper, obviously. So Jill Marks, she's fantastic. She's crewed several people in the past. She lives in Minnesota. She helps Sarah with some of her, uh, uh, racing events here in town. Um, and then she had a friend, Bill Becker, who was in California and he's similarly done this multiple times. So we ended up picking him up and then, you know, it's kind of trying to round out what you need for that crew. So, you know, I needed people that can help with navigation, people that can help with like being organized about nutrition, you know, people with a cycling background and even ultra background are, are people you're going to look for you know, hopefully stable personalities because they're all going to be stuffed together in a car for a lot of long hours. (laughs) And the hope is that, that, you know, everybody can kind of play nice and get through the event together, you know, and then your crew chief is really that person that helps organize everything and kind of keep everybody in line. And they're, they're running everything in the background. And really what you do is sit on the bike and keep pedaling no matter what. And they kind of help iron out all the hiccups. So Greg, you know, he and I became friends training together through big sky and I've, you know, been under his teaching now for the last three and a half years. So he graciously accepted the role, which was above and beyond. And then Deanne, her, you know, her, I think as well, Rose Wiley, Willie and um, Deanne, we suckered half her family into the gig. So (laughs) Joel signed up with us and then her son-in-law, Mike Healy, and then one of our, one of my uh, buddies, Rob Jemison. I hadn't thought about the fact that how many people did you say you had? Eight. Yeah. The the selection of those eight people is just as strategic as, you know, what tires you're going to run or gearing or whatever. You got to make sure, you know, they're not just, I mean, they can be Joe Blow, but you need some people who know what they're doing too. Well, yeah. And I mean, they need to be kind of capable of cross training with each other, you know, I mean, like everybody could drive for the most part, you know, um, 
a lot of higher level thinkers on that group. Um, you know, people that know nutrition and then the biggest issue is having at least, you know, a couple people that have some mechanics skills. So, you know, Greg's pretty handy. Bill Becker had a background. Mike Healy actually used to be a life mechanic for several years. So we were actually pretty covered in that regard. And then Joel is an insane strategic thinker that just plan, plan, plan. And it was phenomenal. And so was Greg with all his uh, charts and whatnot. So it was actually a really well-rounded group. I was watching all the social media posts the whole time you're out there. And it was just incredible seeing because different people would post. And so you got to see, you know, there's a couple of Deanne's posts that would just give the whole rundown. It's like, holy crap, you're doing this thing too. It was, it's just so cool to realize that yes, you're on the bike, but there's this whole background that most people aren't even thinking about. I know. I think that's the biggest winning feature here. You see these races and you read the result and you're like, Oh, look how well so-and-so did in it. Like, you know, it's always about the racer, but the reality for supported events is it's actually really the team on um, the crew is they're doing the lion's share of the work. Like really, I sit my butt on the bike. And I'm like, I'm hungry. I'm cold. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, pee. <laughs> you know, yeah. They, so the crew actually started calling me princess, which was an endearing comment, but it was meant to be like, you know, you're the princess, like, you know, whatever you want, you get like uh-huh. the only goal is keep your butt on the bike and keep moving. I mean, to be fair, you did do that. Like that takes a lot. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I spent a lot of time training. It's a lot of hard work. Um, but you know, you get to the point where um, you just you're so tired and you're so fatigued, and that mental capacity that you normally have is gone. <laughs> so that's where <laughs> these guys have to step up and make sure you're getting appropriate nutrition. They have to be paying attention to weather to make sure you're safe. You know, they're 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 doing a lot of work in the background. How do you uh, how do you communicate with them? Do you have like a radio, or do you have to stop? Um, that depends on how crews want to handle that. Yeah. I think some crews operate without communication. I don't really know how they do it. It's gotta be really tough, which I've faced that before with Hoodoo when our communication system ultimately died, but we had Toronto units. So it's actually a microphone that's on the helmet. And then there, you know, the navigator has the other, uh, um, other side of the communication system. So we can talk with each other. So with that on these roads that you're riding for 930 miles, are they, they're, are they highway roads? Are they like backcountry roads? What kind of roads are you riding on for the most part? Uh, it's a mixture. I, I think, you know, they try to keep you on roads that are, you know, they're highway, but they're, you know, hopefully less traveled. That being said, there are a few strips on that route that got a little bit hairball. Um, we had one section that was, you know, kind of the main through fair in the desert going to the Grand Canyon and, and they had road construction on top of that. So they had like a, a light, you know, where cars were just stacking up and then they let them go and they're stacking up and they let them go. So they're buzzing by you 60 miles an hour and it just on top of one another, there's, there was really no shoulder. That section was challenging. Yeah. Yeah component even the crew was just a little bit frazzled with that because they had it's daytime they had to leapfrog so you know they have to go up a ways they have to pull off very specific you have to be five feet off the fog line you know so you don't take a penalty for that which kind of restricts what areas you can pull off in the desert and you know then you're waiting for your poor rider who's incinerating in the heat and hoping they make it as you watch this stream of cars coming behind them so the, the crew van that were they not allowed to just like follow you through that? They had to go ahead of you uh, for, so for the supported races, um, usually during the daytime, it's leapfrog only. So they have to go up, a, you know, 
to find appropriate pullouts, you know, their main job is to try and find those pullouts and stay as close to you as possible um, and leave you unprotected for as brief a period of time as possible. Um, during the night it's direct follow. So then you have to be within 30 feet of headlights. So you can, if your car has to stop, you have to stop. Um, you know, then they, they kind of come up next to you. They hand stuff out the window to you. They fall back behind. There's criteria of how many times they can do that in an hour, you know, and there's officials out there watching to make sure that you're following the rules in that regard too. You can't go over the double yellow, obviously, like you can't cross the yellow line to come up to your rider. So I don't know. There's a lot that goes into it. And there's some particular areas if they've really deemed it unsafe that they'll do direct follow during the day. So like through the reservations and whatnot, they actually mandated direct follow. And so again, your crew has to know that and know where they can and can't and where they have to be. Cause if they fail, then you take a penalty so that's an hour to your race time every time it happens. And if you do it enough, then they'll uh, disqualify you. Ooh. Wow. So stakes are high to not mess up. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many parts that like, I just never even considered. That I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I considered like, you know, what, what's the van going to do, but I, I hadn't considered the fact that there were all these guidelines around it. And I mean, it makes sense. We, I've just never, you know, I've never done a fully supported race like that. So I uh-huh. wouldn't know. So we might've actually just talked about it, but what was the most stressful or the hardest part for this? Um, I mean, that was, that was a component. Um, but you know, you kind of just fall into a groove and you understand what you're supposed to do. It was just more the crew double checking what areas, you know, we need to to be in compliance. And we already had outlined that long before we ever came to the start line, but this year was particularly challenging with the heat. Um, you know, it's going to be hot in the desert anyway, but then they were calling for heat advisories every day. And I think the worst, our car recorded 118, Fahrenheit. Um, but the tarmac for whatever reason in the desert, they love it to be pitch black. So the radiant heat coming off of that was, you know, much worse. Like it was burning my calves so badly. I thought I was getting sunburned, but then in the next morning, you know, they're like, you're not red. This is just truly from heat coming off the highway. It was intense. You're just cooking your leg. Oh my goodness. It was ridiculous. So that was a really, um, I mean, I knew that was probably going to be my biggest challenge because coming from here, you know, we're used to heat and humidity, but it's not quite the same. Um, And, you know, working through cooling strategies and being able to continue to exercise for hours in that kind of um, environment comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah. What did you do to keep cool in that weather? I mean, that's like keep the old people inside level hot. (laughs) I know. Yeah. That's call for help. Don't go outside. Yeah. Let's go ride our bike forever in it for three days. (laughs) Yeah, that that was, we, we actually had a lot of strategies. So, um, Greg and I did a, um, heat adaptation protocol before I left in hopes of kind of adjusting because temperatures here weren't really that hot yet. We had got a few warm days, but not enough to really be adapted to heat. I tried to get out there a few days early, actually rode in the desert a little bit to kind of understand what kind of hydration requirements I was going to have. Um, and then, you know, it's whatever you can do to stay cool. We actually used a core sensor, which was kind of cool. That was Greg's idea. Um, it's a little monitor that kind of keeps track of your core temperature. And so we, I'd trained with it a bit already before leaving. So we kind of understood, you know, when I do high intensity workouts, what that temperature would be, what it is when I'm kind of doing endurance type rides and, you know, body response to cooling, like how long does it take till you see a response? So we had that on to kind of keep as a, a external monitor of what was going on. And then at arm coolers, we, we were dousing those with ice water 
regularly um, had ice baggies in the bra. We started shoving ice baggies down the side of the hips um, in my Jersey pockets (laughs) down with water, wherever you could just obviously protecting the chamois, but like, you know, between your shoulder blades through your helmet, and, and that became like this leapfrog process, go a few miles up the road, do all this stuff all over again. And then everything would melt, <laughs> throw the baggies off, grab more baggies. And then you try and go a time or two rolling by them. They'd spray my legs off and then have to start it all over again. Wow. So, yeah, I was out in that kind of heat one time and I just had to dump water on myself and it was an you know, unsupported ride. So I didn't get the benefit of <laughs> ice bags and hoses. <laughs> I know it's really hard. Dude, I hear that on rides here, it was really hard doing that, you know, when the temperatures start cranking and I'd watch the temperature core temperatures start flying up like, oh, this is going to be rough. But did I hear that the signs were melting off of the car? It was that hot. Yeah. Yep. Yes, they were. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> the tape was just disintegrating and turning to turning to goo. In fact, I still haven't come clean with fellow Rosa that I've lost two of their signs somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope they find out before. Next Monday. <laughs> yeah, well, I have one. So I owe them a little bit. I lost one of Kyle's signs too. Same. I mean, I think they literally just melted the tape, melted off the door and they're out there. So that, that core temperature monitor, that's just like a armband thing, right? Um, it goes, it, uh, goes on your heart rate strap. So it's kind of on your chest wall. Yeah. Okay. I saw, I remember seeing on Strava, I think when you got it, you're like, Oh, I got a core temperature monitor. I thought, I only know one way to get a core temperature. Like what the heck? I looked it up and I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, they've done some testing in that regard too with athletes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That, well, that, that's why I looked it up. I was like, no way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not signing up for that. <laughs> <laughs> not quite that dedicated. We love science and numbers, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no implants for biking yet. Not yet. <laughs> But I just wanted to, in case anyone else was in the same boat of like, wow, that's hardcore. Like, it, no, it's a, it goes on your chest strap or whatever. Mm-hmm. It which just is super cool. I've been sitting here this whole time just thinking like the route planning and the core temperature and all of that. Just imagining it's hard enough like this, you know, even having the Strava, the map, whatever it is in front of you. I can't imagine something like this 20 years ago. When you're literally looking at a paper map and guessing how hot you are and how fast you're going and, you know, trying to go off the car speedometer, like it really makes me realize just how much we have like technology that can help with some of the logistics. That's true. I don't know, but you know, like they're all good. They're helpful guides to kind of keep you on track, but I don't know. At the end of the day, we all just ride our bike too, you know, and you've after you've sat on your bike that many hours, you you have a you're a pretty good gauge of when things are right, when they're not, what your nutrition is. Do I feel good? Do I feel bad? Do I feel hot? Do I feel cold? You know, kind of preemptively mitigating all those things. So they're they're all nice guides, but at the end of the day, I think we still could do it without a lot of it. Mm-hmm. How many hours a day were you actually on your bike then? Uh nine about ninety percent of the time over the race course. So did you sleep at all? Uh, a little bit. I had a 30 minute nap, a 45 minute nap and another 30 minute nap. And then there were some brief rests in the car that going back, I would not do because those are not effective. So that was a learning point. Um, the rest of it was on the bike. Did you, did you practice a 30 minute nap ahead of time or do you just hope for the best for the three days? Um, 
I didn't do a lot of structured practice. I actually work in the ER, so I kind of live in a perpetual state of chaos as far as being unstable in that regard. But we did have uh, one big day where I think maybe a couple where it was like, do a big stacked ride, come home, eat a little, relax a little, go out and do it again to kind of, you know, like consider taking a little nap, which I tried to do and then ride some more to practice the, the process. So working in the ER 72 hours straight is nothing. <laughs> yeah. No, it's terrible. I don't work that long ever. <laughs> 12 hours max. And I, I'm good to be going home at that rate. Yeah. So with being up that much and just, you know, 930 miles to cover, did anything completely unexpected happen? Mm, no. Um, the fatigue was worse, I suppose than what I had hoped for. I, I don't know, you know, I've done some bigger events with Iowa wind and rock and, uh, you know, I pulled some pretty long hours on big sky, but again, unsupported, you, ha- you really have to maintain control to make decisions about your riding and nutrition and weather. And so you, that just forces you to spend a little more time off the bike. Hoodoo was my only other supported event, which was 512 miles, but we completed that in 35 hours. So again, that was a one straight shot, no stop. This was really the first time of having to try and integrate sleep and crew changes. And, uh, I got a little swirly where I just wasn't quite all home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds reasonable. Actually, <laughs> I'd be a little bit more concerned if you had been mentally good the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I wish you could be, I don't know. It, it looked like that, uh, the 930 mile race, it came down to like the last little bit with you and, uh, who was that person who got, says what? You and three other people who were kind of leapfrogging around for a bit there. Yeah, it was, that was actually ridiculous. And that was like one of the highlights of the race for me. Cause I think we were like at mile 880 and now all of a sudden the top four racers in the field are within a couple miles of each other, which is kind of un that's not common in this type of event, but Lee Juring had been commanding the race the whole time. He's another athlete of Greg's. Um, I was always hoping to catch him. I'd get within like nine miles of him and then he'd slowly start creeping away again. And then BJ, um, was the ultimate winner. Um, Lee started having trouble with his neck. And so when we passed him, I kind of thought something is horribly wrong. This can't be happening. And then Andres, who was the third place finisher, he was the other guy that we all were within a couple miles of each other, passing each other. <laughs> Turned out that all our crews were cheering for each other. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so much fun like the fact that you're like this deep into a race and now we're like riding with all we've got which maybe isn't a lot but (laughs) it was a lot of fun i might have gotten nothing done at work that afternoon because i was just like okay i have to do something for five minutes and then i can refresh again and it was the order changed every single time it was insane it was crazy jen was dot watching the entire oh yeah entire three days (laughs) i appreciate it (laughs) It's awesome. You've got to cheer people on. Like you're doing this crazy thing. Oh, I know. It was really wonderful. You know, Deanne and Rose and those guys, they were reading comments, you know, from Facebook and other social media. So it was, it's nice to hear from people at home and it helps. So I'm curious. It looked like at times you're having a lot of fun. What was your favorite part of this race? Um, hmm. Race start is kind of fun. You leave when you leave Oceanside, you know, 
this year was kind of a muted year because of COVID that they just, you normally your crews are all there, your car follows you out. That's like this big production. It was much more tame, but it's still a lot of people, people, you know, around the ultra cycling community, the weather's pleasant, little bike path heading out is fun. Um, I enjoyed climbing in the mountains. That's kind of, you know, I'm from Montana originally. So any, anytime I get to go climb, I, I enjoy that. And then the race, you know, the end just really, that, that was a hoot. <laughs> That's such a fun way to end it. It was. And I think we were talking about this earlier, but I watched you come in and get off your bike and just stand there. Like you may, like, I don't think I could swing my leg over the bike at that point. <laughs> Like, yeah, I got done. Of course. This is great. Well, yeah, I'm really happy to be done. And I don't know. I, I kind of looking at the video look like a bit of a weeble wobble, <laughs> but it's not, it's not terribly pretty. However, I was doing better than the other guy. <laughs> he was amazing. Like what an athlete. I don't know if you saw pictures of him. He uh, ended up with Shermer's neck and I think he rode like that for 180 miles. So he actually got gorilla tape from our crew. Um, his crew did to tape a bike pump to the back of his helmet and his back to keep his head up. And there was like a bike tube on the back somehow holding all this get up together. Oh my goodness. What, a lot of, uh, what did you call that? Shermer's neck. I haven't heard of that. Um, it, it's unfortunate. It usually is a little bit longer distance. Like they see it more after like a thousand miles, but really your mu- your neck muscles fatigue out to the point you can't hold your head up anymore. Oh. So you have to come up with something to keep your head up. So that's incredible. I'm looking at the route from Oceanside, California to Durango, Colorado. So you started by the ocean and went through what a mountain range, a whole desert and up into like almost another mountain range. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It's a really good thing. You like climbing then. I do. I was really happy. We got to start at the, um, you know, Oceanside start because one that's the beginning of Ram. Um, so it's nice to get to, to see the beginning part of that course. And two, I mean, I, I actually wanted the climbing because it's a strength for me. And they were talking about starting in Las Vegas and if they couldn't get their permits passed this year. And I was just, palms were sweaty, hoping that that was not going to happen because I wanted <laughs> to climb. <laughs> so are you going for Ram? Do you want to do Ram? Uh, it's certainly on my mind. Um, I'd like to, I think if that's going to happen, that's probably a couple of years out with all the planning and same it's the crew and the cars and the, it's a lot. So, and Ram does, you have to qualify for that, right? So would this race then qualify you for Ram? It does. Yeah. And so that gives you two years to plan. Um, and then you have to do another qualifier. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, that would be really interesting. I'd be interested to hear just the thoughts of going from race across the West to that much further to see what changed and what doesn't. I I think, you know, with the snapshot of what I've seen so far, you know, certainly like the structure of the crew and the changeover would be different. Your sleep pattern would be different. Raw being shorter. I think you can get by with a little less sleep. Um, You have to be a little bit more organized with, with Ram. Otherwise, that's a lot of repeating of what we already did. So I think, you know, we kind of learned a lot about what we would need to do going forward. You rode for three days, essentially straight. Do you know how many calories you took in or what was your nutrition plan like? Did you just have them throw pizzas at you? (laughs) Well, I wish, you know, it, it sounds like some of these other racers are very tidy and, you know, they'll go on 
essentially liquid nutrition if they can. I personally am not, and especially with our unsupported background, Euro <laughs> is a product of what you can find along the way. So I'm kind of a garbage can in that I'll, I can eat a lot of things and still keep going. And, you know, really the race intensity drops pretty quickly. So in the desert, I, you know, nutrition was hard just because it's so hot, like eating isn't really a focus then. So we did a lot of liquid nutrition through there, but, you know, like deli sandwiches, peanut butter, jelly, grapes, some fruit, cheese. So like normal person food. Kind of. Yeah, kind of. But we, that was another learning point after like the first day or so I realized like they kept handing me the same stuff. Like you want another deli sandwich? Not really. Do you want peanut butter <laughs> jelly? Not really. Well, what do you want? I don't know. <laughs> These are things that going forward, you need to, I need to think about a little better. So we have more options. One of the, the craziest nutrition that I've heard about so far was talking to Keith Morkel from Iowa Wind and Rock. And he just had, he had a bag of lasagna and he had a bag of apple crisp. And he just, just like you would with a goo pack, just tear off the edge and eat it that way. Yeah. And that seems to work for him. He actually said he kept the apple crisp next to his body to kind of warm it up because it was cold for Iwar. Uh-huh. So he got, he had his lasagna, warmed up the apple crisp. And by the time he was hungry again, it was warm enough that he said it was better. Like, Okay. Yeah. There you go. No, that works. That's my, they th- another favorite of mine. I did that with big sky too, but I'm going to have to keep Keith's idea. I'm not sure if I can get behind the lasagna. <laughs> Dude, that's my favorite story. I can't even eat a lasagna cleanly, like with a fork and like a table. <laughs> yeah. I would just show up with it all over, like everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So I think the last question that I had is if there is someone asking, you know, or saying that they're interested in doing raw, what advice would you give them? Or I guess kind of going off of that, is there anything that you would do differently if you were to do it again? Um, I, I, again, I think my sleep strategy could use some work and detailing out my nutrition as far as having other options for the crew to choose for me would have been things that I would do differently. Um, just because, you know, resting in the car for five minutes, that you're not getting any effective sleep. You're wasting time getting on the bike, off the bike, on the bike, off the bike, in the car, out of the car. It's just not valuable to, if you're really trying to race and maximize your time spent. Um, as far as advice for people, I mean, this is a really big event. Uh, again, it kind of depends on the audience you're talking to. If it's someone that's done ultra racing, they kind of know what they're getting into. Hopefully if it's someone that hasn't done ultra racing quite to this level, I would maybe suggest starting with a shorter event. You know, Hoodoo 500 was a great start. They have a 300 mile option. There's several other little races out there that are a little shorter to see if you really like it. Um, and you know, if you're really serious about it, you can obviously training up, it's a lot of seat time, a lot of seat time. That, that, that's what we've heard about a bunch of those endurance events. Like the I war is just, you got to put the hours in. There's no, there's no substitute for it. No, not really. I mean, you have to be able to sit on your bike mentally for hours and hours and hours, work through all the, you know, aches and pains that you're going to experience along the way and how you're going to mitigate all of that. Um, and, you know, just be able to be on the bike that many hours. And the only way you're going to be on the bike that many hours is to practice being on the bike. But, you know, I think my longest training ride was 12 hours. I had a couple 11 hour rides, a few 10 hour rides. One thing that I just remembered that I don't think we've talked about and might be also unique to anything we've discussed on the podcast. How many bikes did you have with you? 
Oh yeah. I had three, um, two, two bikes were my bikes that were going to be the primary bikes. They, <laughs> the one is my Franken bike, which is a Trek Amanda. It's not the most aero design, but it has aero bars on it and it has race wheels, which have made it better going back that, you know, I bought that bike years ago. I probably, I wouldn't buy that bike again. It's a wonderful bike. It's just, it's for what I do. It's not perfect. Um, and then I ended up with a diamond marquee this year, uh, for the time trial bike. And that, that was what I rode through the desert and the couple flatter sections through the race. And that one was great. And then I, uh, Greg's wife has a Trek Damani, which I actually borrowed. That was affectionately the Oh shit bike. <laughs> <laughs> Everything goes wrong. It's a, you know, it's a hydraulic disc brake. Um, more aero frame. We had wider wheels on it, 32 millimeter wheels, um, or tires just to kind of, if we got into some really ugly terrain or something broke terribly on my other bikes and I needed it. So, but it rode on the roof unused. So did you end up using your two bikes or did you just use one of them? The two. So the Trek Amanda, that one was my primary bike, you know, as far as climbing. And, but then when it was flat, like the desert, that first night I rode the time trial bike for 17, almost 18, 18 hours straight. Mm -hmm. So that's so cool. And you, you fly with that time trial bike. I mean, I, I hate to be a Strava creeper, but like 20 mile an hour, (laughs) hour average for like 10 hours straight, just coming from mountain biking. That just boggles my mind. But I think you should have looked at the course. If I were going that fast, it was pretty flat. Well, yeah, those, those were rides in Iowa. Yeah. No, like that's still fast for that long. And yet we're, we are very used to looking at as, you know, mountain bike or maybe gravel time Mm -hmm. and you get on the road and it just, you can just go so much faster. I know. That's kind of what I love about it. (laughs) I like to go fast, (laughs) see lots of stuff. Well, you certainly got to see a whole bunch of different states on this one. Uh So is there anything else that you would want people to, you know, know about the race or to take away from this? It's a lot of fun. I mean, I think if you, if you like ultra and you like the road, I personally also have a hard time doing like loops around and around and around like a rat in a wheel. I really love the adventure of like ever-changing scenery and whatnot. I mean, these events are a lot of fun and really supported is a lot of fun too. Like, you know, I'm pretty much an unsupported rider by, by training to start. And I really love that too, obviously, but it's, it's a lot of fun to have a car full of people behind you, like taking care of your every need. It's just, it's a different, slightly different mindset to racing. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. You don't get too many people uh, in tutus and unicorn outfits (laughs) when you're just out there on your own. I know. Oh my gosh, boy. Yeah. We had some wild times, you know, I, like I said, I was not always home. And then I remember, well, maybe too much information, but it just kind of makes me chuckle, but really like I had a little potty chair. (laughs) It was like being very discreet with a sheet and whatnot next to the van, (laughs) but this time was going to require a potty chair. And we were in Monument Valley, (laughs) the butt crack of dawn, you know, and there's nobody there. I was like, you know, I've ridden my ass off for this. And it's really great scenery. And you could see the highway stretching out in both directions and really cool rock formations. I'm like, well, guys, I want, I want a view. So we put the potty chair right in the middle. <laughs> I enjoy all of Monument Valley to myself. Yeah. <laughs> under a blue checkered sheet. And then, you know, I turn around and I'm just not home. And I'm looking at my whole night crew and they're all in like unicorn things. <laughs> 
Well, I think your life has reached an all-time new low when you're using the facilities under a sheet in Monument Valley with a pack of unicorns. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's reached an all-time high and you just didn't know it. I know. <laughs> Who else gets to do that? Yeah, I don't think it's either high or low. I think you've just shifted to a different life dimension at that point. Just You can't even compare that to like anything else. No, not really. See, am I making the sell yet? <laughs> I mean, that is awesome. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you make it sound so easy. Like, oh, just grab eight, eight of your best friends, train for a couple years and <laughs> go ride your bike. Go ride for three days. That's about it in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a, that was, I'm, uh, thank you for sharing that story. That is phenomenal. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. It was amazing getting to talk to you especially right after you got back so thank you yeah absolutely thanks for having me it's nice to talk to you guys yeah well we'll talk to you soon we get we get around we'll run into you somewhere (laughs) guaranteed with that i think we're gonna wrap up the interview portion here heather once again thank you so much for coming on and have a good day you too thank you yep bye bye